The goal of my series on God's garden is to help you see the gospel of Jesus Christ in the original garden. And I really think that that's a, that's a real challenge given traditional views about Adam and Eve's relationship to God from the very beginning. Many, many Christians think of the gospel as something God made up as plan B. That is, after Adam and Eve sinned, God changed the method that he's going to relate from human beings from that point on. And so you have this brand new invention called the covenant of grace after the fall. And that's how so many Christians look at this, that um, it really is a challenge to say, no, no, there's not two covenants here, there's one. There's the eternal covenant of grace from the very beginning. But we've seen good reasons to reject that two-covenant view. Covenant of works at the beginning and then a covenant of grace that God began after the fall. Adam was created by grace from the beginning and creation is the pattern for recreation later in the Bible. Adam was created by God's grace to live through faith in God's word unto obedience. Sounds like the gospel to me. Sounds like something right out of Ephesians chapter 2. In Genesis chapter 2, we saw that Adam and Eve are prophetic of Jesus Christ and the church, the bridegroom and the new bride. Just as the woman was taken from the side of Adam, so the church is created through the blood and the water from the side of Christ. There's an awful lot of gospel in Genesis chapter 2. If only we have the eyes to look for it. If only we have the reason to, to suspect that the gospel is from the very beginning of our Bible. In fact, we look when you get to the New Testament it's very clear that both Jesus and Paul taught the created order they both quoted from Genesis chapter 2 when they were teaching about marriage well they wouldn't be able to do that unless there's gospel in Genesis chapter 2 because they were not preaching a covenant of works well last week we looked at the temptation in Genesis chapter 3 which is the ideal scene of every sin and act of unbelief the original temptation is parallel to the temptation of Jesus Christ as we saw in Luke 4, and you can also see the same basic parallels in Matthew chapter 4 as well. James even used the pattern and the progression of the first temptation as the archetype of gospel life in his teaching. And I'll conclude today with another example that's even bigger than James's example. But you wouldn't think that James would be able to do that. How can James use the pattern of the original temptation if the original relationship of man and woman in the garden was one of works. Would James be teaching works? Now, there are people in church history that say that the book of James shouldn't be in our Bible because he does teach it the works. So, it's kind of ironic because um, the, the person most responsible for this idea of covenant of works from the very beginning is Martin Luther. And Martin Luther was also the one who thought that James should not be in our Bible. He called it an epistle of straw, which is kind of ironic seeing a mighty fortress is our God this morning because he talks about devils being filled with demons and temptation and craftiness and he's using all the stuff from Genesis chapter 2 and 3. It's just amazing. I did find an old commentary this week that takes a similar approach to the way that I've been going about this, this series and it kind of surprised me. I wasn't expecting to find it, but listen to what these guys had to say about the temptation back in 1868. And this is the conclusion of chapter of two of this commentary, it's a J, JFB commentary. They say, we, as well as the first man, are in a state of probation. And the grand design which God has in view in placing us amid circumstances of temptation and trial is to determine whether we have the principle of obedience. From the creation of the world, 
The grand contest has been who shall be worshipped and served, the Creator or the creature. This was man's trial under the first covenant and it is that by which every man is still tried, although thanks be to God, he is not now to stand or fall by his own works alone. It was to be proved in Eden whether man would seek wisdom and happiness independently of God and this is precisely the trial to which we are subjected still. Let us then hear and obey the word of God whatsoever he commands let us resolve with unswerving fidelity to do it and knowing that he has laid no restraints issued no prohibitions except in regard to things that are hurtful to us let us steadily adhere to the path of duty he has prescribed for that will always be found the path of peace and happiness those guys understood it they got it the very same situation that they face we face the original covenant is the same covenant that we relate to God through today. Gospel, grace, faith, obedience, worship are all the ingredients of God's garden from the very beginning. Now today we'll see more connections between what happened in the garden and what happens in the rest of the Bible. So let's pick up our text in Genesis chapter 3 beginning in verse 7. Then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. As I mentioned last week, I believe that it was God's plan to give man and woman access to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in his own timing. If everything God made was very good from the very beginning, then the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was very good in the garden. But only in God's timing. We've seen how God has worked his way through the process of creating man and woman and giving them various grace at various times for the things that they needed. And what we really have in the garden is God teaching Adam and Eve. Yet Eve and then Adam determined for themselves that the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eyes. They took the shortcut. They listened to the serpent and who said that they could decide good and evil on their own. And this was their sin, to love the fruit of the tree and follow the word of the serpent rather than the love of God and follow his word alone. That's where the fall happened. Now you can see here in verse 7 that the tree did affect a change. In other words, it did exactly what God created it to do. It affected a change so that both of their eyes, the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. Now, it's not evident in English, but the word for naked in verse 7 here is slightly different than the word for naked in Hebrew in, verse, in chapter 2, verse 25. Remember back at the end of verse, chapter 2, it says the man and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. The, the words are actually related in Hebrew, but there's a vowel difference. And this naked is different here than what you have in 2.25. And obviously that makes sense because now they understood that they were naked and they had shame because they began to sew fig leaves together and make coverings for themselves. Now, that doesn't come across in the English and some people say, well, the vowels weren't there originally, so it's not that big of a deal if they were added later. But I think there may be a subtle change in there for the particular reason of showing that this nakedness is different than the nakedness back in 225. Remember, I said the visual images of 225 is that they were innocent like a baby, like a baby is born naked and has no shame. No longer now are they innocent and so they understand the shame of their nakedness, and so this is a little different. Now, this word for naked actually comes up later in the Old Testament as well. 
Deuteronomy 28. Turn with me there to Deuteronomy 28. The very famous passage of blessings and curses for obedience and disobedience uses this term naked again as one of the curses. Actually, in the conclusion to the curses. Verse 45. All these curses will come upon you. They will pursue you and overtake you until you are destroyed because you did not obey the Lord your God and observe the commands and decrees He gave you. Sounds like the garden. They will be a sign and a wonder to you and your descendants forever because you did not serve the Lord your God joyfully and gladly in the time of prosperity. Therefore, in hunger and thirst, in nakedness and dire poverty, you will serve the enemies the Lord sends against you. He will put an iron yoke on your neck until you are destroyed. So nakedness. This nakedness becomes a part of the law as well as a curse. They were naked in the sense that they are now under judgment. They were naked in the sense that now they were facing God Himself and they were ashamed because of the actions that they had done. Now because I believe that the central theme of the garden is the gospel in seed form, I believe there is far more going on here in Genesis 3-7 than merely a story about physical details. This clothing here is symbolic for something else. And it's using this symbolism to, to talk about the gospel of Jesus Christ. When God promised Adam, for example, that he would die when he ate from the tree, he wasn't talking about biological death. We know that because when they ate from the tree, they didn't biologically die. So if God was talking about biological death as a, as a curse for, for disobeying his command, it was actually the serpent who said, you will not surely die, who was telling the truth, and God was the liar. If we take that approach to look at this, same thing with the clothing. We're not talking about physical clothing here. We're talking about the moral world where someone is guilty before God and actually naked in God's judgment. So I would just say, remember that this is a gospel story here. So thinking of the, think of the clothing issue the same way that we think of the death here. This is sin death. This is separation from God. And so what did they do? What did Adam and Eve do? They went to work with their own hands and by their own works they tried to fix themselves, sewing fig leaves together to cover their nakedness. They tried to cover their own nakedness by the work of their own hands. Now, I think there's some visual irony here about the fig leaf and there's a reason why fig leaves are mentioned here. Has anyone seen fig leaves before? Does everybody here know what a fig leaf looks like? It's kind of round and it has lobes. In fact, if you look at my hand right now, it actually is a lot like a hand. Only the lobes are bigger. Okay? So it's kind of a round. So how do you sew those together? Does that make good clothing? Those listening can't see what I'm doing with the hands. I was trying to put your hands together to make clothing with fig leaves. It's not going to work. It still leaves stuff exposed. That's the point with a fig leaf because it's not made. It's not adequate for clothing and it's not durable either. It won't last. But if you think of your hand as a sort of a, a fig leaf, and there may be actually that connection there with the actual vision of what a fig leaf looks like and the work of our hands here all playing its role in this account. But if you try to sew your hands together, you're not going to get very good clothing. It's got bumpy edges, it's got big lobes, and you're really going to have kind of a see-through garment, loincloth, so to speak. No matter how you do it, there's going to be places where you can see through it. And so the shape of the fig leaf makes it very, very difficult to make coverings. 
Now what happens later in the account, verse 20, verse 21, the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And so it wasn't good enough. What they make with their fig leaves with their own hands was not good enough. And then God steps in and gives them more grace, more grace, and gives them clothing of skin. And what's the difference between skin and fig leaves? Well, skin will actually clothe you totally. And it is God who's the one who clothes them. This is all the gospel playing out here in these particular issues. In fact, the giving of skins required sacrifice. You had to kill an animal to give the skin to Adam and Eve. And so we have here in Genesis 3 the gospel being pictured in this clothing that God provides in his grace for Adam and Eve. Now, which would you prefer on the way out of the garden to the wilderness? Clothing of fig leaves or clothing of skins? Think of yourself in this story where they're on their way out because they have sinned and God gives them grace. Now turn with me to Isaiah 59. Now that you've got that visual image in your mind, Isaiah chapter 59, beginning verse 1. Surely the arm of the Lord is not too short to save, nor his ear too dull to hear. But your iniquities have separated you from your God. That's sin death. Your sins have hidden his face from you so that he will not hear. For your hands are stained with blood and your fingers with guilt. Your lips have spoken lies and your tongue mutters wicked things. No one calls for justice. No one pleads his case with integrity. They rely on empty arguments. We're going to see those shortly in Genesis chapter 3. And speak lies. They concede trouble and give birth to, to evil. They hatch the eggs of vipers and spin a white, spider's web. In other words, they're making cloth out of spider's web. Whoever eats their eggs will die, and when one is broken and the adder is hatched, their cobwebs are useless for clothing. They cannot cover themselves with what they make. Their deeds are evil deeds, and acts of violence are in their hands. You see the echo from Genesis chapter 3? Evil deeds in the garden translate to the fig, leaf, fig leaves being sewn together by the work of their hands. And here the prophet says they're going to make clothes out of cobwebs. Can you imagine trying to wear clothes made out of cobwebs? Not appropriate. And so we have a little bit of a bigger, fuller exposition here of Genesis chapter 3. Or turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5. Now we know that if the earthly tent we live in is destroyed, we have a building from God, an eternal house in heaven, not built by human hands. Meanwhile we groan, longing to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, because when we are clothed, we will not be found naked. For while we are in this tent, we groan in our burden, because we do not wish to be unclothed, but to be clothed with our heavenly dwelling, so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Now it is God who has made us for this very purpose, and he has given us the Spirit as a deposit, guaranteeing what is to come. Now, a lot of people are thinking that, that Paul's talking about here biological death and biological life, so we're talking about you know, life and death kinds of things. I actually don't believe that. I believe that Paul is talking about two temples, one an earthly temple in Jerusalem, which was built by hands, which Paul knew was about to be destroyed, and that was a big concern to his audience. The other temple was not made by human hands and was God's eternal temple, which clothes God's people who worship in it. 
But notice that the clothing and the nakedness that Paul mentions refers to salvation. That it's from God or the futility of sort of self-salvation by the works of your hands. It's just like the garden. He is speaking of covenant life and immortality. Now one more passage. Revelation chapter 3, we see the very same thing going on. Genesis 3-7 echoes all the way across the Bible and keeps going. Revelation chapter 3, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds, that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. It's talking about salvation. Well, that's not the last one. I want to go to, to the part about the white robes. Revelation chapter 7. Because here we have kind of an explosion of things. Then one of the elders who asked me, these in white robes, same ones being referred to back in Revelation chapter 3, who are they and where did they come from? I answered, sir, you know, these are they who have come out of the great tribulation. They have washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. There's the washing in blood, the water and blood concept. Talked about from the side of Christ when he was speared. Water and blood. Here, John brings those two together in the washing of their robes and making them white in the blood of the Lamb. And it gets better. Therefore, they are before the throne of God and serve Him day and night in His temple. The new temple. And He who sits on the throne, Jesus Christ, will spread His tent over them. There's Paul's tent again from 2 Corinthians 5. Christ's life, immortality, He spreads His temple over over them, the new covenant. There's a bunch of stuff there. And it's ironic because Paul was a tent maker. It's amazing things going on. So it all starts in God's garden in Genesis. And that takes care of Genesis 3.7. So let's continue on. Genesis 3.8 Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man, Where are you? He answered, I heard you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. What else starts in the garden besides this clothing theology of salvation is the Lord's coming in judgment. Notice that the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden and when God shows up in judgment, there is noise. The voice of the Lord is noisy. Uh, You see the same thing with New Testament stuff. 1 Thessalonians, Paul says that the parousia of the coming of the Lord would be with a loud command, voice of the archangel, and trumpet of God. There's noise involved in the coming of the Lord. We see that right here in the garden with the very first coming of the Lord. If you read the book of Revelation, you realize that it's a very loud book. Revelation is loud. That's why a lot of people don't really understand what's going on in Revelation because they don't read it with a, with a visual imagery that's involved in the book. It's very loud. And that's, It's a scary book, too. And that's another thing, too, that we see right here in Genesis 3. Adam and Eve were scared of God's coming in judgment. Notice something else about the coming of the Lord in the garden. The very first coming of the Lord. The man and the woman caught in sin tried to hide. 
because they had become dead to God. Now there is a foreshadowing here of what happened at Sinai. Turn to Exodus 19 we'll see the same thing going on with another wicked and rebellious generation in Exodus chapter 19, beginning in verse 14. After Moses had gone down the mountain to the people, he consecrated them and they washed their clothes. Then he said to the people, Prepare yourselves for the third day, abstain from sexual relations. On the morning of the third day, there was thunder and lightning, noisy, with a thick cloud over the mountain and with a very loud trumpet blast, everyone in the camp trembled. Then Moses led the people out of the camp to meet with God and they stood at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was covered with smoke because the Lord descended on it in fire. The smoke billowed up from it like a smoke from the furnace. The whole mountain trembled violently and the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder. Then Moses spoke and the voice of God answered him. The Lord descended to the top of the mountain, Mount Sinai, and called Moses to the top of the mountain. So Moses went up. And what's the response of the people? Chapter 20, verse 18. When they heard the voice of God at the mountain, the thunders and the lightnings and the loud trumpets, when the people saw the thunder and lightnings and heard the trumpets and saw the mountain in smoke, they trembled with fear. They stayed at a distance and said to Moses, Speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we will die. Another rebellious and sinful uh, generation who hid themselves from God's coming at Sinai. God's coming is dangerous to disobedient man. That's what we learn in very, at the very beginning in, in Genesis chapter 3. Sinful man in the presence of God tries to run away. Milton Terry shows how this coming of the Lord in Genesis 3 is the prototype of what we find in the rest of Scripture. This is the beginning point. Everything else in Scripture about the coming of the Lord in judgment is just like this. And Terry puts it this way, The concept of Jehovah God walking in the garden in the cool of the day and calling unto the man the inquiry, Where art thou? suggests an idea of judgment common to all revelations of the coming of the Lord. He comes to bring light to the works of darkness and we note how the searching words of the judge reveal the sin and guilt of the transgressors and contain the several sentences of divine judgment. And so, in all subsequent revelations, punishment comes because of evil doing. The secrets of all hearts must be revealed. And so what we have here at the very beginning is the outline of the coming of the Lord that we see all through our scriptures at various points in time and ultimately at the end of the ages. Look at the man and woman's response in verse 11. And he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man said, The woman you put here with me She gave me some fruit from the tree, and I ate it. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. The very first thing we must recognize about the very first coming of the Lord is that the Lord comes to set things right. Most Christians in our day look at the coming of the second coming of the Lord, the coming of the Lord that they're looking forward to, And they think that God is going to come back and end this world. And that's not what we see here in the first coming. Christians have already missed it because they, in large measure, they don't understand Genesis chapter 3. What happens when the Lord comes to the garden? God didn't come to the garden to end the world because Adam and Eve screwed up so bad. That's not what he's coming back for. 
The Lord came back to put things right again. Remember how the fall took place? The serpent, the creature, more subtle and more crafty than any other creature that God had made, tempted the woman, and then the woman tempted the man. And so the order is from down below to above. The fall takes place when the creation has dominion over the woman, and then the woman has dominion over the man. And yet, what happens when, when the Lord comes to the garden? Who does He call to first? The man. And so the coming of the Lord is all designed to put things right again. He inquires of the man. and He gets the man to actually confess on his own terms. Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, The woman you put here with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. How ironic. The woman you put here in the garden with me gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate it. In one short chapter, Adam goes from rejoicing for God's good gift of the woman, bone of his bones and flesh of his, bl- flesh, of his flesh, to blaming her and God for her, his disobedience. Because that's who he's blaming. He's blaming God because you put her there. Well, God, you put the woman here with me. That woman that you put here. It's God. Through the woman, he's blaming God. And the woman follows his lead. She blames the serpent. She blames the creation. And they both claim that God's creation is at fault. Now, there's a big lesson here because this is the universal excuse. Something out there made me do it. Something God made made me do it. Beginning of environmentalism right here, if you think of it that way. The idea that the environment creates your conditions. God put a woman here and she screwed me up. God put a snake here and it screwed me up. We also have a remarkable picture about the result of sin, spiritual death, because God originally made man and woman to cleave unto one another. And here you have the man blaming the woman. And so what God had joined together is now falling apart. The fellowship they were created to enjoy together is now falling apart. Now that death had entered, what happened to this blessed relationship? What we witness here is actually the alienation that's the result of sin. Not just the alienation of the man from the woman, for he blamed her for his sin, but the alienation from God, which all of the other alienation flows from. It is this source of alienation from God that made them run and hide from God and also put their own marriage on the rocks. That's really what's going on here. As Adam blames the woman, the marriage itself becomes in danger. So what the story says is nothing different than the gospel. The gospel says that when man tries to be his own God, he is alienated from his fellow man because he is alienated from God. Later in the story, the sin of trying to be like God is the cause for why they are thrown out of the garden. So they tried to be like God and they not only lost the blessings that God gave them, they lose access to the presence of God. So in reaching out to become like God, they lost everything. Every war, every divorce... Every murder flows from the source of alienation. And that is what we see worked out in the story in Genesis chapter 4 with Cain and Abel. You have two brothers. Because of the sin of one, one of them commits murder. Which means that the gospel is all about restoration of what was lost in the garden. The gospel redeems those who believe so that they might have fellowship again with God, friendship among man as the indirect result. And the gospel is really the return to the garden, to the grace that God had given man. 
In fact, you could actually say that the gospel is the garden. Being made alive in Christ is to be in God's garden. The old alienation dies when we are made to live by grace through faith unto obedience. And that's why the gospel is the only hope for the world. And if this story of the garden here and the temptation in the fall and the judgment of God, the coming of the Lord, that makes sense out of the New Testament. Turn with me to 1 John. And I'm going to end with this end in 1 John. I'm going to read some selections from 1 John. And when we read these, think back to the story in the garden and see if you can see some parallels. 1 John chapter 2. We know that we have come to know Him if we obey His commands. The man who says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar, and the truth is not in him. But if anyone obeys his word, God's love is truly made complete in him. This is how we know we are in him. Whoever claims to live him must walk as Jesus did. My dear friends, I am not writing you a new command, but an old one which you have had since the beginning. Think Genesis. When he uses the word beginning, think Genesis. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I am writing you a new command. Its truth is seen in him and you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates his brother is still in the darkness. Whoever loves his brother lives in the light and there is nothing in him to make him stumble. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. He does not know where he is going because of darkness has blinded him. I write to you, dear children, because your sins have been forgiven on account of his name. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, dear children, because you have known the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you have known him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God lives in you and you have overcome the evil one. Do not love the world or anything in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For everything in the world, the cravings of sinful man, the lust of his eyes, and the boasting of what he has and does to become like God, comes not from the Father, but from the world. The world and its desires pass away, but the man who does the will of God lives forever. Chapter 2, beginning in verse 24. See that what you have heard from the beginning remains in you. If it does, you also will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is what He promised us, even eternal life. I am writing you these things, writing these things to you about those who are trying to lead you astray. Chapter 3, verse 7. Pay attention to the imagery that John grabs from the Old Testament. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. He who does what is right is righteous just as he is righteous. He who does what is sinful is of the devil because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin because God's seed remains in him. He cannot go on sinning because he was born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not a child of God nor is anyone who does not love his brother. This is the message you heard from the beginning. We should love one another. Do not be like Cain, who belonged to the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own actions were evil and his brothers were righteousness. Do not be surprised, my brothers, if the world hates you. We know 
that we have passed from death to life because we love our brother. Anyone who does not love remains in death. Anyone who hates his brother is a murderer and you know that no murderer has eternal life in him. John's talking about the removal of the sin death, the resurrection, and the new life in Christ. And he concludes in victory. Chapter 5. Everyone who believes that Jesus is the Christ is born of God and everyone who loves the Father loves his child as well. This is how we know that we love the children of God by loving God and carrying out His commands. This is love for God to obey His commands and His commands are not burdensome for everyone born of God overcomes the world. This is the victory that has overcome the world, even our faith. Who is it that overcomes the world? Only he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God. And the conclusion in verse 11 and 12. And this is the testimony. God has given us eternal life and this life is in His Son. He who has the Son has life and he who does not have the Son of God does not have life. Amen. Let's pray.